This is Edward Mazur, President Emeritus of the City Club of Chicago. Our program today focused on youth mental health, community conversations. It's a very exciting program that featured a very special guest, Dr. Vivit Murthy, the Surgeon General of the United States of America. Formerly, he was the personal physician of former President Barack Obama. Uh, Dr. Allison Arwady, the head of the Chicago Department of Public Health. State Senator Mike Simmons, who represents probably the most diverse district in the state of Illinois, stretching from roughly Belmont and Clark and Broadway all the way up to the Evanston border. And Dr. Colleen Cachetti of Lurie Hospital. Full biographies of all these folks can be found online at cityclubofchicago.org. The panelists all spoke about mental health intervention, moving it from intervention to public health promotions. When they focused on the city of Chicago, Dr. Arwady pointed out that in 2019, the Department of Public Health treated 3,600 people for mental health issues. Now, in 2022, they're on schedule to treat more than 60,000 people. All the panelists agreed that people need to know what their mental health benefits are and how to access them. They all held a discussion indicating that mental health is health in the broadest sense. It is not separated from physical health. They all talked about athletes who, at the top of their game, still need coaches so that we need to strengthen our mental health facilities as well as our physical health facilities. They focused in on young people and the struggles they've been facing since the COVID pandemic, social anxiety, loneliness, isolation, the need to talk to people. They also talked about the fact that many parents are struggling through this very trying period and that young people sometimes don't want to add to the stress that their parents may be experiencing. But the bottom line is, People must communicate and talk with each other and avoid stigmatizing mental health. I'm sorry to interrupt everyone's conversations, but we have a, a great program today. Uh, again, my name is Dan Gibbons. Uh, on behalf of uh, City Club's Board of Governors, who I'll ask, I'll ask to, uh, to wave. I know we've got um, our, our chairwoman, Jackie Robinson-Ivy, is here. Uh, Dr. Edward Mazur is here, our chair emeritus. Uh, Omar Dagsani is here, uh, and Dr. Jose Sanchez, Board of Governors of uh, City Club of Chicago. We all welcome you here to the Ivy Room uh, and, and appreciate you being here, especially our members, and, and hopefully we have uh, some new members after today's program. Uh, we have an incredible lineup today to talk about one of the most pressing issues in our city and our country, mental health, and specifically uh, mental health, you know, with teens and, and youth. Uh, there will be two conversations uh, up here on the dais, and, and we'll introduce each panelist uh, as that program progresses. Uh, before we do that, I do want to recognize uh, a few special guests that we have here. Uh, a champion for the youth of Chicago who, alongside her wife, uh, Mayor Lori Lightfoot, uh, is fully dedicated to the future of Chicago. First Lady Amy Eshelman.
another public servant who we've all gotten to know over the past few years, and probably she hasn't had a day off since this pandemic, uh, Health Commissioner Dr. Allison Arwady. And we'll hear from her later. We'll also hear later from a state senator. We'll introduce um, Mike Simmons, who you'll be hearing from uh, on our second panel. State Senator. We're also joined by some great philanthropic and, and business leaders uh, of Chicago. Susan Crown is here. Thank you, Susan. Trisha Rooney is here. Uh, Peter O'Brien is here. Heather Staines. Uh, of course, Lori Healy from the Obama Presidential Center. Smita Shaw. So many great people that do so many great things uh, for the city of Chicago. So thanks for all that you do and for being here at City Club. Um, of course, a very special welcome to Chicago uh, and to, to the City Club, to the Surgeon General of the United States. Uh, I, I called him last night at, at dinner. I called him the Yo-Yo Ma of mental health. <laughs> he's, a, he's, he's an incredible guy who we all can't wait to, uh, to hear more from. So please welcome uh, Dr. Dr. Rick Morthy. So Dr. Morthy, this, this is the Meet the City Club. Really welcome to Chicago. We're, we're so happy. To, we, we are a very diverse group of leaders and perhaps a few future leaders, right? Uh, who come from the public sector, the private sector, the philanthropic, the not-for-profit world. We range in age and ethnicity, orientation, you name it. We even have our own diversity of pizza likings, minus Connie's. <laughs> True diversity of sports allegiances, go White Sox. So, you know, you'll get to know Chicago a little bit while you're, while you're here. But one thing that we do all have in common is, is that we love this city of Chicago and, and we care about what goes on here and what needs to be helped along and everyone in this room is really dedicated to the future of the city. So you've, you've, you've got the right audience here and we are just honored to have you here to tackle a topic that unfortunately uh, has really hit our, our city and our country with force. Um, the idea for, for today's program came through a new partnership with After School Matters uh, in Adler University. And, Doctor, we're going to hear from you a little bit later, uh, Dr. Crossman. Uh, ASM is an incredible organization that many of you know. Um, Maggie Daly started it back in the early 90s, and uh, it quickly became a, a national model for helping teens navigate historically difficult hours of the day and, and years of of their lives. Um, so the longtime leader of that organization is a major reason that we're all here today. Uh, she's a great partner to the City Club. She's a, a personal friend of mine and a hero to thousands of, of teens who have really found their purpose in their lives through ASM. Uh, so please welcome CEO of After School Matters, Mary Ellen Karen. should have Dan introduce me every day. <laughs> Dr. Murthy, before we get started, there's a local mental health champion who really wanted to be here today, but he's unable to be here. He had a great game last night, and Adrian Sherenzel Curry from the Bulls brought a gift for you from DeMar DeRozan. <laughs> it's a signed basketball. And if you don't know, um, DeMar DeRozan is a real champion when it comes to mental health. You know, I know. 
So everyone, thank you for being here today. After School Matters has celebrated 33 years in Chicago. We work with teens throughout the city. We work in schools. We work in parks, community-based organizations. We work after school and during the summer. We have employed experts in their field as instructors from the very beginning. Our instructors are classically trained vocalists, they're scientists, they're physicians, and they're visual artists. I can go on and on about all that our instructors are. A few years ago, the instructors and the teens were telling us that feelings were very different than they had been in the past. There was a lot of anxiety, depression, trauma. We knew we had to do something different than we had done for the first 27, 28 years. And so we tapped Dr. Ray Crossman in Adler University to help us figure out what exactly we could do to help our teens. Adler answered the call, and we now provide free counseling to teens and instructors, and we provide free counseling groups to our young people when they need it. This partnership has really worked, and it's worked for many reasons, but two that I'll point out to you. One is our teens are in a program where they already have an adult, the instructor, who they connect with, who is their mentor, who they really know and trust. And so that instructor helps navigate access to counseling. And not all kids need counseling. Some of them just need Mindful Monday, which um, Adler also provides at our building. Some need very little, but they do have feelings that are challenging them at the moment. The second thing is the Adler clinicians embraced youth development and listening to teens and looking at teens in a different way, and we're really grateful to them. Our partnership is very successful, and we intend for it to continue, and we hope it'll expand. I've worked in... Uh, I've worked with young people for my whole career. I was a teacher and a principal, and I know how important education is. I know how important a school is, but I also know that schools can no longer do all that's required of them at this time. And so I really think that we have to look at how our young people's lives were disrupted during the pandemic, and we all have to work together to get them where they need, where they want to go, and where they also need to go. Chicago has a marvelous history with Jane Addams and the Settlement House. We have more community-based organizations than most cities in the world, and we are ready to help young people with whatever they need in the mental health space. And as I say, some need to talk to somebody once. Some need a, a mindful Monday where an adult is just listening to how they feel at that moment. And some need real counseling, individual counseling. So funding is always an issue. We're going to work to continue to make sure that funding continues to happen. Now, in After School Matters, we do nothing without our teens telling us what we need to do. We also do not take them out of school 
except for really big things. So we took one teen out of school today, but we wanted you to hear from teens across the city about their mental health, and here's what they had to say. What teens are dealing with today is mostly depression or being shy and close due to sexuality or what's happening at home. Teens are dealing with a lot. <laughs> Rather that be being a pandemic baby, like bro, most of my most of my high school year was spent online behind a computer and that's a very hard way to learn. Boy gender identities, I think it's also something that us teens think about a lot. I feel like teens are dealing with a bunch of social anxiety, trying to fit in with everyone, but at the same time, trying to like set a trend and make a way for themselves. They just don't know how to do it yet. Being able to be comfortable around, you know, family or friends. They really help you. I talk to people, I get you socially active, and they they really make you feel like, they really make you feel important. It helps me to focus on what I want to most achieve in life. Helps me to not push away everyone that I care about and not to cloud myself in a bunch of thoughts and become depressed. Makes me feel like I have somewhere to go after school and somewhere where I belong. It like helps me be social and makes me realize that even when I'm not okay, I have somebody to go to or talk to in the building. I believe that taking care of mental health is very important, especially because in today's society, it's just so stigmatized where in a, in a bad way and to the point where it's, it's kind of seen as wrong to look for help when in reality, we as people need to look for help sometimes. We need that outlet to let go of things that we ourselves can't control. And we need to reassure ourselves that sometimes it's okay. I feel like as the youth, we should kind of keep on promoting that idea of how important mental health is and kind of like just support one another. What ASM does is like they don't really care what you are, what you do. They accept you for who you are and let you express yourself equally amongst your peers. So now it's my pleasure to introduce our U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Vivid Murthy. And our After School Matters teens, Carvel Anderson and Sorelli Garcia. Dr. Murthy was confirmed in 2021 to serve as the Surgeon General for the United States of America. And as you know, he previously served as Surgeon General under our own President Obama. As the nation's doctor, the Surgeon General's mission is to help lay the foundation for a healthier country, and we're incredibly pleased to have him here in Chicago, but most importantly, last night, he met with about 15 of our teenagers. He also met with the clinicians and the instructors at a different time, and I told him last night, his resume is fantastic, but for me, how he listened and interacted with teenagers says a lot, again, about your leadership, but more importantly, about who you are as a person. So thank you for all of it. And then I want to introduce Mr. Carvel Anderson, who is an After School Matters alum, a native Chicagoan. He's a college freshman at Trinity Christian College, where he's been named a diversity scholar and founder scholar. 
There you That's you, Carvel. <laughs> and I also want to introduce Sorelli Garcia, who's currently enrolled at After School Matters. She lives in the Belmont Cragen neighborhood. She's a senior at Sen High School, Go Sen. At, and at ASM, she's participated in several programs, as well as being an, in, an intern at our Lutz Center. Please give them a round of applause as they come forward. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for being here. We really appreciate it, and we're extremely excited to be having this conversation with you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, just to start off, uh, <laughs> having been in AS uh, After School Matters, okay, uh, I really got to understand the importance of community um, and how it can be so meaningful during stressful times. Um, what kind of role do you think community plays in youth health, mental health today? Well, I'm glad you asked that question because I, I think community is the heart of how we're going to address mental health challenges going forward. Uh, but let me just also say how excited I am to have this conversation with you and to have both of you uh, leading this discussion, especially as alums of After School Matters, which uh, I was just so impressed with uh, last night when I had the chance to visit with the community, with students here, with clinicians, and, and, and with instructors. Uh, but the reason I think community is so central is because of something I, I realized early on when I was uh, practicing medicine which is that I would have patients who would often come uh, in to see us and <clears throat> you know, they would have chronic health conditions like diabetes and heart disease. Some of them were struggling with mental health concerns. And over time, I came to realize that while I could maybe adjust their medications here and there, that the roots of many of those challenges actually lay in their communities with their lack of access to fresh food or lack of access to safe spaces mm -hmm. where they can walk uh, and exercise. And when it came to their mental health, it had to do with factors in their community, their relationships with their parents, their friendships or lack of friendships, mm -hmm. conflicts that they may be dealing with at work or a work environment which may be toxic and unhealthy for them and impacts their mental health. And as a doctor, I felt like, what can I do about that? How can I change their work culture? How can I make sure there's a grocery store in their neighborhood? That felt like it was beyond my reach. But that's where communities come in because your community is your foundation for health and well-being. Uh, when a community is engaged on critical health issues like mental health, then it can bring all of its resources to bear to address it. And I think after school, after school matters is actually an interesting example of that. Right? It's a recognition that to address mental health, uh, this collaboration that uh, after school matters has with Adler University has has helped us understand that it's it's not just doctors and nurses who can actually address mental health. Right? It's people in our communities. And so I think part of what we have to do going forward is to think more creatively about who constitutes the mental health workforce, right? It's not just psychiatrists and psychologists, although they have a very important function to play. Mm -hmm. uh, but teachers can be powerful uh, in this role. People in, in workplaces, managers and bosses, can have a powerful impact on mental health. We know that peers, peer support groups uh, and programs are also vital. So that means that young people themselves can be sources of, of help and support to those who are struggling. Uh, mm -hmm. So all of these folks constitute the community uh, that we're a part of. They may not be part of the healthcare apparatus as traditionally defined, but they are going to be vital for us to address mental health in Chicago and certainly all across the country. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> all right. <laughs> That's a really good answer. <laughs> 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 
As a senior in high school, I know my friends and I are having a lot of stress and anxiety and dealing with a lot of change. What do you hear from other high schoolers, and what are some of the major things that you notice in teens' mental health? Mm. Well, thanks for asking, Sir Ellie. I've you know, had the great privilege in, in this job of being able to speak to roundtables of, of, of youth, college students, high school students, uh, including middle, students, uh, middle school students and even elementary school students um, all across the country. And I'll tell you that those are some of my favorite experiences uh, as Surgeon General because that's where I uh, get to really learn about what people are going through. There's only so much you can gather reading reports and, and stats, you know, in your office in D.C. Uh, the real learning takes place when we travel. <clears throat> and here, you know, what, what we hear, what I hear time and time again uh, from, from young people, particularly let's talk about high school students in particular, um, as I hear many of them are struggling, right? When I ask them, what, what, what are you struggling with? Uh, the sense of social anxiety. Uh, of coming out of this isolation of the pandemic and reintegrating into some sort of new normal uh, feels stressful for many of them. Um, many also say that they're not sure who they can talk to uh, about their struggles, that they may not have a counselor at school or they may not be, feel comfortable talking to their parents about it. But there's another piece to this too, which I think is interesting, which is about many of them talk about their parents and about the fact that their parents are also struggling. And because their parents are struggling, that not only sometimes can generate more stress in the household, but it also makes them hesitant to bring their problems to their parents because they don't want to add to their stresses, right? Mm-hmm. So the, there's one last thing that, uh, that students say very consistently, uh, which is that they feel a sense of loneliness and isolation, right? They don't often use those words, uh, by the way, but they'll describe that. They'll say, you know, I, I'm dealing with all this stuff and I feel like I've got to do it by myself. Or if I'm in a bad place, I just feel like there's nobody I can turn to. Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes, like, all these burdens that I'm carrying, I feel like I'm carrying on my own. Right? These are the words they'll use, but they speak to this deeper sense of, of loneliness and isolation that they're experiencing. So those are very common themes that we hear, whether it's in big cities or, or small towns. Um, and, and this is why I think it's so important for us to listen uh, to young people. Because one thing that has impressed me... Uh, is that I find that young people have a remarkable amount of insight into what they're experiencing. <clears throat> like if you, and if you, when I was in medical school, like we had a, prof- a professor who was our doctor-patient teacher, and he would guide us in how to you know, interview patients. And he would always say uh, to me, he would say, if you list, let a patient talk long enough, which doctors aren't very good at doing, but if you do that <laughs> and you actually listen to what they're saying, they will often lead you to the diagnosis. But you have to be willing to listen to them. Uh, and let them speak. And I, I found, I was reminded of that when talking to young people across the country because, again, a remarkable amount of in, insight into what they're dealing with and even into what may be driving it uh, as well. Like just one example, um, take social media, for example, which comes up in almost every conversation I have with young people and certainly comes up in all the conversations with their parents because the number one question I get about mental health from parents is, is it related to social media, the struggles my kid has, and, or is it putting my child in danger? But when this comes up, you know, young people often tell me a few things consistently about social media. They say, uh, as they said yesterday, for example, that sometimes they learn about mental health on social media because people are posting about their struggles with mental health, and that can give them language for how to talk about it. It can help them realize that, hey, other people are struggling too. That's a good thing. Uh, But they also say that their experience with social media often makes them feel more alone because they... Which seems paradoxical, right? But it's a it's a mixed relationship, and sometimes they look at what other people are doing, 
and they're having a great, great time without them and they feel even more left out. Or sometimes they compare themselves to what people are posting online and say, gosh, that person's life seems so amazing and, uh, and mine doesn't seem to be by comparison. And so they feel worse about themselves. Um, and so that's an important topic we've got to address. But the bottom line is, uh, I think this, these are some of the themes that come up in conversations with young people. Uh, but I do think the more we listen to them, I think the more they will help guide us about what we need to do, you know, as, as adults, as, as society more broadly, uh, to address some of the fundamental drivers uh, of mental health challenges in that group. Mm. Um, <laughs> so growing up as a black man, <laughs> um, thinking about, like, mental health can be very um, intimidating for some people because of the stigma around it. Um, what are some ways we can start destigmatizing mental health? Well, growing up as a brown man, it was hard for me, too. I'll tell you that. And, um, and there are a lot of folks like us who grew up in families and communities where this just wasn't something we talked about. Right. Right? And, um, you know, as a young person, like, I, I struggled a lot with my own mental health uh, when I was in elementary school, middle school. <clears throat> But I didn't really, I wouldn't have even called it mental health because I didn't know what that was. Uh, I didn't know how to think about what I was dealing with. I certainly didn't know how to talk. I, I knew enough to feel that I should be ashamed in some way mm-hmm. or should like, be careful about talking about it. Uh, and so even though I, like, my parents loved me unconditionally and I knew that, even though like, I was very close to my sister and she loved me unconditionally, I still never talked to them about it. Mm-hmm. You know. And so it was only later in life that I spoke to um, friends of mine who were with me in school at that time and realized that they too were struggling, but none of us knew. We all thought we were the only ones, you know, having a, a tough time. Um, but I also remember, you know, when I was in high school, uh, I had, uh, I was, was actually doing my homework on a Sunday uh, at the dining table, which was my designated workplace. <laughs> and parenthetically, during the pandemic, when we were spending some time down in Florida with my with my parents early in the pandemic, that once again became my dedicated workplace. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, it was surreal. But I remember, uh, I remember on, on that Sunday, uh, the phone rang, and I picked it up, and this is the old days of corded phones, which some of you in the room I know remember. Amen. I, I picked up the phone, and it was my uncle's roommate. My uncle had come from India a few years ago, and he was, wanted to build a life here in the United States, uh, and he had a couple of folks that he was rooming with as he was you know, making his way and building a nest egg, and ultimately one day he hoped to have a home of his own. Um, but that day, she was calling because uh, he wasn't coming out of his room. Uh, and I knew that he was really hard of hearing. So I said, and he had a hearing aid. So I was like, he probably doesn't have his hearing aid in. Just like really bang on the door. You know, just like, you know, put your shoulder into it, bang into that, on that door. And so she did. Um, but there was still no answer. Um, and then I got worried. And I said, you, I think we should call the police. And so she called the police. They broke down the door and found that sadly he had taken his own life uh, in the room. And... I was the one who was getting this news, right? And, you know, I'm 16, 15, 16 years old at the time. I don't really know how to process this or think about it. And I still remember I called my, my, my father at the time I told him. And it, it was a really difficult time for my family because we really didn't know how to process this. We felt guilt. We felt, like, did we do something wrong? Did we miss something? Could we have helped uh, if we had been more attentive? Maybe we should have talked to him more about how he was feeling. Um, it was complicated, right? So, the, but the point, and there was a sense of shame also. This, I remember this, almost like this sheet coming down, like you know, over all of us, thinking where we had to like kind of keep this information within the family. You know, we shouldn't talk to people about it other outside because they would think bad, badly of our family. 
Um, that was like the heaviness of that stigma. And it took me many years before I like actually talked about that experience with, uh, with anyone else. Um, so I think that stigma is real, and even, but there are two things that give me some hope. One is actually young people themselves who talk very differently about mental health today than the generations that came before them. And I think in that way, young people are showing us a better way forward, a more honest, open, and real way forward, which is to be honest about how you're feeling. But I think the other thing is like we're seeing more and more, uh, even in older generations, a recognition that, that we've got to think and talk differently about mental health. And I think the way we, we change that stigma... Uh, Carvel is we talk about our stories and share our stories and we do that that takes courage it's not easy to do um, but every time somebody stands up and shares with courage what they've gone through what their family has gone through they give other people permission uh, to do the same they help others feel that they are not alone and so that sharing is incredibly important and I think even beyond the individual I think every time foundations fund initiatives on mental health that sends a a message to the community that, hey, this is something that's important, that's worth investing in. Uh, Every time public health leaders make mental health a priority and design policies uh, that support mental health and invest in mental health, another message goes out to communities that, hey, this is important. Uh, Journalists have an important role here. A lot of them have been really at the forefront of trying to tell the stories of those who are struggling with mental health. So that is how we ultimately change this stigma because the truth is that Everyone is impacted in some way uh, by mental health struggles. Everyone will struggle at some point in their life. It's just a question of when uh, and to what extent. And if we can all recognize that, um, that would help us a great deal uh, to come forward, to recognize it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to lean on one another. Um, One last thing I'll just say here, because this is a culture piece as well, because stigma is really about culture, right? Culture is how we collectively think about issues. And one of the things I think that we have to change culturally is how we think about strength. Mm, like, what yeah. defines strength? That's good. Right? So if you think about, take DeMar DeRozan, since uh, he was kind enough to, to, to share his basketball. Um, <laughs> people like DeMar and other athletes, right, we think of them as pictures of strength, right? And if we're asked to define strength, we often say, well, it's somebody who can bench a lot, somebody who can run a lot, somebody who can run fast. You know, we think about it in terms of physical prowess, Right? Stamina and strength, that's how we, uh, and physical strength, that's how we define strength. But if you talk to athletes who are at the top of their game, you know, people like a DeMar DeRozan or a LeBron James or, or folks in tennis like a Roger Federer or a Nadal or a Serena Williams, right? <clears throat> what they'll tell you is that strength isn't just about the physical game, it's about their mental game as well. So at the highest level, athletes know that the mental game matters, and they also know that you need coaching even at the highest level. And there's a lesson there for us, I think, which is a true strength is about the mental and the physical. And we shouldn't feel shame you know, about talking about our mental health needs just the way we shouldn't feel shame talking about our physical health needs. But that coaching part is important too, right? Because even at the top of their game, Serena Williams and Rafael Nadal have coaches. What does that tell us? It tells us that we can all continue to get better. We all need help from time to time. We all slip back a little bit, even though we're trying to move forward. We need somebody who can catch us and help guide us forward. That's why asking for help when it comes to your mental health should be something that is just as normal uh, as an athlete having a coach. But if we can define strength, again, it's not just the physical, but also as a mental as well. To me, that will change fundamentally uh, what we look to cultivate uh, in ourselves and certainly in our young people. Thank you. Thank you for even sharing that experience. Thank you. <clears throat>
Well, this has been an extreme honor, honestly. Um, and you dropped so much like knowledge and wisdom. <laughs> so really, just thank you so much for this time. Well, thank you both so much. And thank you for being an inspiration to me and to others out there. I just, one last thing I want to say about both of you is that you know, we had a chance to talk for a few minutes uh, beforehand. And, um, you know, I know you had a powerful experience in After School Matters. I know you've taken that experience now to... Uh, your new lives as a senior in high school and as a freshman in college, uh, which we're excited about. But my hope is that you will continue to use that powerful voice of yours uh, and share your story with honesty, with courage, uh, and just remember that every time you do that, um, that you are giving somebody else hope because you're helping them realize that you're not alone. My mentor, uh, one of my mentors in medical school once told me, she said, when you stand in strength, you allow others to find you, Mm. right? And that is what you do every time you stand up and you share your story, you know, with honesty and with courage. So uh, thank you for everything both of you are doing as well. Grateful for you. Thank you so much. As Carvel said, amen. Thank you. <laughs> amen. Thank you, Carvel and Sorelli. It is, it is really inspiring to... Uh, to see young people stepping up uh, and, and talking about this. Uh, as I ask our panelists to come up and, and sit down, uh, I'll, I'll start the introduction, so please, if you don't mind. Um, it's re- it, it really is great to see this next generation. Um, and you talk a lot about your relationship with your parents and everyone's relationship. My parents are actually here, and the, they can attest to this. We didn't talk about mental health. Where are your parents? They, they're sitting right over here, oh. proud, next to my wife, Kate. And, and I promise, you know, they can attest to this. We didn't talk about mental health. They, I'm sure they didn't with their parents. Uh, but it's a new day, and here we are at City Club doing this. And uh, now I'm sorry we lost the podium, so I'll stand over here. Um, and, and I've got young sons. I know you, you mentioned you've got the little, little guys. Hopefully by the time that they're all teenagers, we can all say that we were at City Club had a, a small part in the solution. Mm-hmm. Um, so thank you again for taking this to the next generation. And um, I'm excited to hear. Now, speaking of solutions, these are the folks that are, are providing the solutions. Um, so I'm, I'm honored to, to introduce, and I mentioned a couple of them already, Dr. Colleen Cacchetti. Um, she's the executive director of the Center for Childhood Resilience uh, at a, and a clinical psychologist at the NH Lurie and Robert, uh, Ann and Robert H. Lurie Children's Hospital of Chicago, a great Chicago institution. Uh, we love Lurie. So thank you for being here, doctor. We've got Illinois State Senator Mike Simmons. Uh, Senator Simmons represents the 7th District. He's got a great story. Uh, I won't, we won't go into full bios, but uh, we've got, all, got them all online. Um, he's been opening doors for people who have been unjustly treated uh, in, in society for, for forever, and I believe he, we all believe he's the, the future of, of our state government. So thank you, Senator, for being here. At, and, and then, of course, we've got Dr. Allison Arwadi, uh, as I mentioned, the commissioner of the Chicago Department of Public Health, such a beloved figure in Chicago. Thank you, Thank you for leading us through this horrible pandemic um, and, and all the work that you now have to do on, on so much more. Um, what I love uh, even more about Dr. Arwadi is in all of her 
free time that she has, she actually still sees patients every Saturday morning, which is such a, such an amazing thing. So, um, as a pediatrician, so look forward to your questions. And again, if you have questions, please write them down, get them back, write them now because it's gonna it's gonna happen quickly. Uh, and if we have some free time, we'll we'll get to the questions um, at at the end of this panel. So, I'll hand it back to you, uh, Doctor Doctor Murthy, and thank you all for being here. Thank you. Well, I'm so glad that we have the chance to have this discussion. And now you'll get to hear from three folks who really have extraordinary experience, wisdom, and expertise to share. So I'm looking forward to this. You know, we we talked a little bit earlier about how important this moment is for mental health. Uh, You know, we have been struggling for a long time, as many of you know, prior to the pandemic with mental health. Uh, particularly among kids, uh, where in the decade prior to the pandemic, there was a 57% increase in the suicide rate. Right now, we have 44% of high school students who are seeing they feel persistently sad and hopeless. It takes 11 years, on average, from when a child experiences symptoms of their mental health struggles to when they actually get help. These are all three numbers I keep in my head because they, to me, illustrate how profound this challenge is and why it must, why it is, I believe, the defining the challenge of this generation, which is to figure out how do we finally address mental health, particularly for young people. Every time we hear about these stories, though, sometimes they can feel, they can feel you know, heavy and they can feel depressing at times because you think, gosh, is there any light here? Are there any bright spots? Is there any good happening? Well, this is where the good news is. There is a lot of good happening. There are a lot of bright spots all around the country, particularly here uh, in Chicago. And that's why I'm excited for this conversation. And I want to start with Dr. Arwadi, um, who you know, has been certainly a, a champion, I know, for the, for the city and all the incredible work she's done during the pandemic. But I also think that the extraordinary work of the pandemic and the coverage that has gotten uh, has in some ways, I think, obscured the incredible work that she and her team are doing when it comes to mental health. So I would love for you to talk about that, particularly to how, about how you're helping to extend and create opportunities for trauma-informed care uh, for residents in Chicago. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you again for coming to Chicago. We love having visitors. We love talking about mental health. Um, so, right. Thankfully, when Mayor Lightfoot came in in 2019, I also came in as the acting commissioner, and Matt Richards over there came in as our deputy commissioner uh, for behavioral health. And the three of us said, let's get serious about what this city is doing to support mental health. And the mayor said, I want you to focus on youth. I want you to focus on kids. If we look at 2019... We were operating five clinics here in the city was. Uh, We were funding organizations in about 13 communities. We served 3,651 people with mental health services in 2019. Important, critical safety network. 3,651 people, city of 3 million people, not the scale we need. And so major investments, thankfully, even before COVID hit, that we've then been building. We saw about 3,600 people in 2019. We are on track to serve 60,000 residents this year uh, in public. Yeah, applaud for that. It's a big deal. And, And we are a very long way from being done here. 
But the way we've done this is with a focus on equity, with saying we want a clinic in every community area, all 77 community areas that are open to everybody, regardless of insurance, regardless of ability to pay, regardless of immigration status. And we want that care to be high quality and trauma-informed. So we call it our trauma-informed centers of care. We are partnering with 49 organizations across this city, federally qualified health centers, community mental health centers, which are the state-funded organizations, uh, and other nonprofit organizations. <coughs> the city has added funding to and increased our capacity to make sure there's a child psychiatrist on staff, to make sure there are family therapists available, to make sure uh, we can really link people in their neighborhoods with care that makes sense for them and their families. And, you know, I already gave sort of the overall numbers, but do you know how many kids the city was serving in 2019 with mental health services? Zero. We're on track for 15,000 this year. And that is thanks. Yeah, it's a big deal. Thank you. It is thanks to so many partnerships, and the thing I love about the city is that there are so many organizations that care and care about this issue. Uh, when we think about being trauma-informed, the idea is you change the conversation from what's wrong with you to what happened to you. And how do we as providers recognize and build empathy for the fact that all of us have had traumas and stressors in our lives and that often the patients we're taking care of the staff have sometimes had those same traumas, and it can feel like a buzzword sometimes. <laughs> but I'll tell you, when my staff came and said, we want to be more trauma-informed, they brought a list that was about this long of everything from redo the locks on the bathroom doors to change the forms at the front door to make sure we're creating welcoming environments that are not re-traumatizing and make sure that the patients and the staff have power. That is what working toward trauma-informed to me looks like, and our trauma-informed centers of care, which is what we call these clinical partners in every neighborhood that will take anybody high-quality, trauma-informed centers of care. It's not the whole story. We're also moving mental health services outside of the walls of clinics, which is another whole story and a big need in this city. We're working to bring trainings outside of clinics to all of the extenders, to the folks working in violence prevention, to the coaches, uh, to your point. Um, we're working to coordinate the system. But I am incredibly proud that while all this has been going on, we're making real measurable, um, we're making real measurable progress. I'll point you to the unspoken campaign. Um, that's what we're calling our campaign here because for so long, mental health has been something we don't talk about. So if you want to see more, you can uh, check out mentalhealth.chicago.gov. Um, but many folks in this room have been part of building this network. We're not there yet, but we're making good progress. Mm. Thank you so much for that. That's incredible. <laughs> Dr. Chiquetti, I want to come to you next. And you have been really instrumental in thinking at a state level of how to bring communities uh, along on this journey and how to, in mm -hmm. fact, take their guidance you know, as we move forward. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more uh, about your center's work and about how you've been engaging communities in the broader mental health effort. Yeah, absolutely. First, I just want to also reiterate, thank you for coming. Lots of politicians come to Chicago to talk about all the problems we have. Mm -hmm. So having a politician come and hear all the great things that are happening <laughs> here makes us really happy. And it is this whole room. And I think that's when you use the word community, and as you were describing it earlier, community is essential to everything. 
We know that healing comes through relationships and creating safe, stable relationships in whatever way that means. So when we think about community, you know, I'm a psychologist by training. I was trained. I work at Lurie Children's and saw patients one-on-one. And that was powerful work. And I've been doing trauma work for my whole career. But when you really think about what we're facing and why Chicago is a leader in this is that so many folks are facing so many things. And so we cannot limit this to mental health providers. There will never be a day that we'll have enough mental health providers to meet everyone's need. Mm -hmm. So we have to think about wellness in the ways that you were talking about earlier. So when we talk about our center, we sit at a children's hospital. We know really good things can be done. And when kids get to us, they're going to get fantastic treatment. I know that. And most kids will never, ever get to us. And we have kids sitting on wait lists. 70% of kids who ever talk to a mental health professional in this country do it in their school. That's the only mental health provider they will ever talk to. And so our center says, okay, we don't want to wait till kids come to a hospital. We want to think about how do we partner with the communities, figure out what is it that kids need in their communities where they live, learn, play. Who are the adults that are going to help them to thrive, to build on their strengths, to hold them up and give them what they need to be successful, but also to know when they need more help, to break down stigma through relationships, and to connect kids to services. So the way that we do that is really thinking differently about how do we equip those adults, whether they're Girl Scout leaders or soccer camp coaches or whatever they are, to think about how might they use their relationship to help that kid to thrive. And if we do that, we're not asking them to become mental health professionals. As we know, schools don't need more. But what we've learned is if you really think about who goes into the education field, who goes into coaching or volunteering in after-school matters, people who care and love kids. So they have skills to connect with kids, but what they don't have is the skills to say, okay, how might I address this if a kid is struggling? If a kid comes to me in a crisis, what can I do through my relationship to help that kid feel better? But also, what do I do to connect them to other services, and where do I go if I need more? And so through our work, what we're doing largely is partnering with Chicago Public Schools initially, and now we've taken it statewide. I mean, we have some people here that were here a long time ago. Chicago and Illinois adopted a mental health plan 20 years ago that it said schools have to be an integral part of this. And so we've been talking about things like creating multi-tiered systems of support where all kids get what they need through SEL. Mm -hmm. And then we add to that a referral system, a behavioral health system. We've got people from Chicago public schools. We started in one little school with a grant and now we're, it's in every single school is the goal, right? So we are creating systems to say, what is it that kids need? Do they need, like she said, an after-school program or do they need a clinical intervention do they need to go to a community provider and so we're building these networks of support that really are saying this needs to happen in community like she said and it needs to happen with the adults that are in their lives all the time and we also need to invest in behavioral health experts and and building that workforce but we got to do all of it at once and i think um this whole community that I'm looking out at today are the people that have been doing that. And we've got some really good ideas, and with private funding and federal grants, we've done that, but we need sustainable funding to make this happen for every kid in our community. Yeah. And, and that's incredible, first of all. I think what I love about what you're doing is uh, with two things. One is you're helping to shift and I think broaden how we think about the role of a school. 
right? Yeah. And I think the traditional view is this is where children go to learn how to read and write and do math and maybe learn some science and history. <laughs> but if we truly look at our schools as the forces that can give kids a foundation for a healthy, safe, good life uh, later on, then it does feel that the social-emotional learning, the yeah. mental health component is vital to that because we have Absolutely. seen the opposite of yeah. what happens when children do not get that. And I think the old notion that, well, kids get all that at home, I think just has not proven to be the case. Uh, and many of their parents never got that foundation either. So I really applaud what you're doing. The other piece I want to underscore is what you mentioned at the very end uh, about funding, which is um, one of my worries about our country as a whole is that we tend to fund things on an emergency basis, right? There's a crisis. We get a bill forward. We put a, a significant amount of uh, funding into it. But then local communities are trying to figure out, well, what happens next year and the year after that? Should we build the initiative only to have it collapse in two years when there's a fiscal cliff? Uh, or are we going to get sustained funding for it? And I think as a country, we have to shift to thinking about that sustained funding, about the long-term investments that we make in mental health and prevention, because we need to get beyond crisis thinking and get to foundational thinking, and I think funding ha has to reflect that as well. Yeah. Um, Senator Simmons, I want to come to you on this, because, you know, thinking of when we talk about community and engaging uh, the community, I think the voices of youth in particular are so important to bring to the table to the conversation. Um, you've done a, a really remarkable uh, job creating uh, you know, people's councils, essentially bodies where you can bring those voices together in the legislative policymaking process. I'd love for you to talk to us a little bit about how you made that a reality. How do you create the kind of environment where people feel comfortable actually sharing what they think, where they feel valued and seen, where they think that their input's actually going to make a difference? Because I think it's a special skill. Anyone can set up a council creating the environment where they actually people feel good and feel like this is going to work for me. That's a whole different ballgame. So I'd love if you could talk a bit about how you built these councils. Absolutely. And, and thank you so much, Dr. Murphy, for coming to Chicago and talking about mental health. This has made my week. So thanks for having me here. I'm honored to be on this panel. Um, it, it, it all starts with, you know, as a state senator for, I'd say, probably one of the most diverse districts in the state, if not the country, far north side of Chicago, neighborhoods like Rogers Park, Lincoln Square, where I grew up, Uptown, Edgewater, um, just some of the most diverse communities in the country. Um, I decided pretty early that I wanted to represent every single part of the district. Uh, and the most effective way to do that is to send to the people. And so that sounds nice, right? It's, it's a thing of, okay, well, how do you actually operationalize that? So the People's Legislative Council initiative out of my office comprises of organically assembling constituents from all across the district. And there's no real magic uh, to, to how we do this. It's really organic. It's people that I've met uh, at black club parties. It's people that I have uh, had reach out to my office who are in crisis. They are people who uh, you might actually encounter um, in your official legislative duties. And so we've got now, uh, in the year and a half that I've been the state senator, uh, we've got five of those councils up and going. Uh, we've put together constituents who are seniors, uh, most importantly, young people, which is where uh, the mental health legislation came out of. So when we convene our, our, our youth councils, uh, we go in with no agenda. We, we get the youth together in our schools or in the community, um, and I, I, my goal is to have them talk. And so as you, as you said, Dr. Murthy, it, it's, um, you know, people ask me how we do these councils, and I always feel like it's, it's a bit of a method, and it's also a bit of how we set the table. Mm. So young people, what I find interesting is that they know exactly what's going on. 
Um, disenfranchised youth, I think, understand exactly where they are and the overall systemic injustices that surround their lives. And so when we go into those councils, we do everything we can to make them feel comfortable, um, to, to give them a sense that they are correct and normal. There's nothing about you that we are here to fix. We're not here to study you. We're not here to research you. We're not here to tell you the solution. What we want to do is just listen. And so, you know, and you said this earlier, Dr. Murthy, sometimes I find with, with young people and, and, frankly, all of my constituents that have not engaged with government that you have to kind of sit and listen. Um, and it become very open-ended, and it can and sometimes be, it can look like it's not very structured. Uh, but you'll, you'll find that after 90 minutes with, with young people, they've told you everything that you need to know as a legislator. And, um, you know, we went to Mather High School in my district, which is, by the way, one of the most diverse high schools in the country, over 140 different ethnic groups represented. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm somebody who, in my district, I'm the first, uh, per, first black person to serve as a state senator for the far north side of Chicago. My mother was African-American. My, do- my dad was an Ethiopian political asylum seeker. Uh, and I'm also the first openly gay person to serve in the Illinois Senate. So that's a lot of intersectionality. Yeah. And, <laughs> and, I, and I mention that because I feel like I have an extra responsibility to make sure that all of these differ- diverse constituencies are heard, and so especially with, with our young people. So when we did our, our youth councils, um, after about an hour or so, the young people at Mather High School and then Uplift High School, which is another phenomenal high school in Chicago where there's a whole social justice curriculum that's been instituted where, where uh, youth can come in and can learn about uh, some of these injustices that they see in, in the classroom, which really makes their lived experiences feel a lot more validated. Um, so we talked to these young people, and what they consistently said, and, and two different schools and, and other youth that were in these councils, is we feel like we oftentimes are experiencing things that um, we don't have language for, um, and, it, and it doesn't feel healthy. And, you know, sometimes our parents are dealing with these things, and we don't know how to talk about that. Um, or, you know, we are in a situation where we can't get to school on time, and we get to school and we feel like crying, but we can't because we got to learn, and there's a sense that they're just being paraded and marched all the time. And that all goes back to mental health, and when we heard that, um, I decided right away that we had to take action on that, and so we introduced legislation, SB 4028, that does, a, that does two things. One, it requires that all Illinois K-12 schools instruct on how and where to access mental health, because so many young people had told us that they just don't know where to start. There may even be social workers or therapists in the school, but they won't oftentimes know how to access from point A to point B. So that law is, is that's now the law of the land. The governor signed that bill. Um, and so we'll, we'll see that start to take shape. And then the other thing I want to mention is that my legislation creates a student mental health council, uh, which will be comprised of young people. Um, and specifically, we are requiring that there be uh, LGBTQ youth as part of these councils, that there be uh, black and brown youth as part of these councils, that there be young women as part of these councils who will talk about these mental health challenges that they're experiencing in the same space as legislators and other stakeholders who are, are running the organizations that oftentimes are providing mental health. And that Student Mental Health Council will also include mental health providers um, who are themselves often uh, LGBTQ or, or people of color or others who are newer, I think, to some of the mental health uh, spaces, but uh, bring an awful lot of expertise to, to this work. And so um, I'm happy about that progress we've made so far and um, looking forward to continuing that. I know our time is winding down, but I I wanted to see if I can very quickly squeeze in a couple last things here. One is on parents. We know so that the mental health of young people is 
deeply affected by their parents and by the environment at home. Yet many parents themselves are struggling. Many may not know exactly how to manage the mental health challenges their children are facing. Do you have any thoughts on how we should be engaging parents or programs that you're involved with that that may provide parents some of the support they need? Sure, go ahead. Sure. Um, Yeah, I think parents are critical. When we talk about the link between children and community, parents are sort of the lens with which kids engage in community to start with, and then obviously their peers over time take over. But I think it's really critical that we think about how complicated it is to navigate the system. So I know, Senators, um, your legislation is also tied to something called the Children's Mental Health Partnership, which has been around for 20 years, and some people are here from there. And we really, um, in that work, have always said that we need to figure out in this system, even if you have insurance, trying to navigate getting your kids' clinical services when they are in crisis or you are in crisis is really difficult. And so I know we've got the Kennedy Forum. You know, we've been talking about parity here in this state for a long time, but it is really hard to navigate. So we need to start first and foremost with helping people understand what their mental health benefits are and where to find them in the communities where they live, learn, and play. But we also need to be really thinking about how do we engage parents as strengths. You know, we have at Lurie Children's work that's been moved into the early childhood spaces starting when people are pregnant. You know, helping people understand that they know their kid best, they need to be building community around them to help their child to thrive, and that when there's an issue with their child, it's not an issue that they should be ashamed of, but rather reach out. But our systems haven't always been great at that, and I think we can own that in Chicago there's a lot of distancing. One of our biggest challenges of getting mental health services in schools was even getting parental consent. And so, you know, teachers and social workers say, I can't get consent. So we have a a disconnect between our schools and our um, students and the people who work in the schools. We really need to build that. So in a lot of the modeling and partnering that I know of so many of you are doing, we're really thinking differently about how do we engage the young people But also, how do we think about strengths? So we're talking about trauma-informed, but we're also talking about healing-centered. And when you move into that phase, you're really saying that families are strengths to rely on, and we have to approach them that way, not blame them when their kids are challenged, and really do a lot more on that education. And I think one of the stories that I love is the number of times we've had parents who we've interviewed, and they've said, it was because I got help from my child in school that I realized that my older kids could have used this a long time ago Mm -hmm. and that I personally need some help. But it's when we open it up and bring it to the younger ones, we start to see it percolate up through parents because parents aren't going to take care of themselves. I mean, I've been on an airplane. They say put your own mask on first. We all know none of us are going to do that. But once we go in and get help for our kids and then we see that it actually changes them, then we might say, oh, what else do I need to learn or what can I do? So I, I, I do think it's, it's really changing the conversation and building on becoming welcoming spaces so people walk in and feel like I'm respected, I'm heard, and if I want something for my child, I know them best, and I'm coming to you because I want you to help me, not because I want you to fix my kid for me. So, yeah. You know, I would add that you know, as the public health department, we're more about prevention than treatment, ideally. Just 
how much of a crisis this is, meaning we're focusing a lot on crisis response and making sure people can get that treatment. But when we're thinking about prevention in parents, um, you know, we've launched a program called Family Connects. The goal of that is that every new baby born in the city of Chicago, there is a home visit that is offered from a nurse, the most trusted providers, uh, you know, a few weeks, about three weeks after birth when the excitement has worn off, the family has gone home, the postpartum <laughs> depression, if it's going to emerge, maybe yeah. a moment. And a nurse comes in, and it's, this is offered universally because we know that mental health issues, physical health issues, needing to navigate... That is a time of great stress for the family, but it's also an amazing time of opportunity to connect that family. And so, yes, we're making sure that baby and mom, you know, have their physical health needs met. But we are doing a good mental health assessment uh, and saying, are there unmet needs in your preschooler, in the rest of your family? Really taking that moment that is changing a family to say, let's bring mental health into that conversation and make sure you are connected to others who may be going through this other stressful time. It's one little piece, but this idea of not having it be unspoken, having it be something, mental health is health. It's not separate from physical health. And having it be just integrated into all of the work that we do um, is, I think, how from the very beginning you get parents thinking about their own mental health and the health of their children from the earliest days. Yeah, and what a great model to do from the beginning. Uh, in the last 30 seconds that we have, uh, let me start with you, Senator Simmons. What gives you hope? Oh, okay. Um, can I say something quickly? On yeah, the yeah, topic? Please, please, please. I just I wanted to quickly mention yeah. that in terms of parents, a quick story. Uh, I read a story a month after I got sworn in as state senator about a black child in Chicago who uh, his parents had, his mom had braided his hair and he went to school and the administrators told him that his hair uh, was violating the student handhold and sent them home. So he was traumatized by this. I read this newspaper, and at first I said, okay, this sucks. And I said, wait a minute, I'm a state senator. I can do something about this. <laughs> so <laughs> you know, I, called, uh, I called my staff that night, and I said, we got to get a bill on this. And we fought really hard on that bill. It's called the Jet Hawkins Act. We named it after that young person. We called the mother and said, we see you. I know I don't know you, but we are going to change the law so that all youth in this state uh, that want to wear their hair natural in a way that indicates African descent will be able to do so. And we got that bill passed. It was a huge fight. Governor Prisker came to my district to sign the bill at a high school, and it was history. And, you know, what's special about that is the boy's mother was such an integral part of all of it. She had had the nerve to advocate for her child, which actually allowed this to even end up in the newspapers, which allowed me to actually see it as a state senator and to take action. And the reason that that is such an important issue is because mental health, the research has shown that when young people are, are profiled um, and singled out for things that are, are God-given, this color of their skin, their sexual orientation. I was bullied as a gay youth in, our, in my schools. And other things that they don't control, we know that that has a deleterious impact on their mental health. So I just I wanted to mention that because such beautiful. a beautiful story where mom, son, um, and elected official work together to, to, to make history in the state. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. So just in the 30 seconds we have, just would love for each of you just to tell us what gives you hope as you look to the future. What gives me hope is the two young people that were up here earlier. Um, I believe uh, that this next generation is talking about things and teaching us and leading the way, and I 
full confidence that they are going to hold us accountable. I have two young people in my house, and they hold me accountable, so I expect <laughs> you to hold all of us accountable. And I believe that they're going to help us um, change how we think about mental health and really move this country forward. Beautiful. Thank you. Senator Sands, how about you? I, you know, what gives me hope, and I always say this, is all the issues that I'm fighting for as a state senator, the people who I am serving have not given up hope themselves. That mother still had the nerve to fight for her black child. I have people in my district who are immigrants and refugees who still get out of bed every morning and they go to a job that underpays them, that won't give them health insurance. If they don't give up, I'm not going to give up. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. And, yeah, and I would just add that, you know, we are in a standing room conversation here about youth mental health. And there are so many people in Chicago who have been open about their own mental health challenges and willing to say, how do I change my business? How do I change the conversation? How do I get involved? And, you know, the youth focus is the part that's the prevention piece. This is where we've got to do this well. Um, and so I'm just, it gives me hope that, that, that all of you are here wanting to talk about this and not just talk, but like take action because we've got to do better uh, for this generation. Wonderful. Well, I think we're going to have a little bit of time for a Q&A. Is that right? Or no? <laughs> we're going to ask our, our, our chairwoman, uh, Jackie Robinson-Ivy, to tie things up a little bit. I don't know if we have time for Q&A. Totally. Um, but here's Jackie, uh, who has one final introduction and possibly a question. Okay. okay. Um, thank you, everyone. I'm going to go to the podium just so I'm not looking a little discombobulated here. Um, I don't know that we have time for questions, but I do want to make a couple of comments. So um, before I say much, I want to take time to acknowledge the staffs today, from the Ivy Room to After School Matters to Adler to Dr. Morthy's staff to um, some people that I'm really near and dear, near and dear to my heart of the City Club staff. It's taken a lot to make this happen today, so thank you. I would like to say we have a list of great questions, but unfortunately, Dr. Murthy, you asked and they answered each one of them. <laughs> Literally. So I, in Chicago, we're the city that works. Are we still the city that works? Is that what we still call ourselves? <laughs> yeah, right. Do I have to, Amy says, do you have to ask that? <laughs> so I don't want to detain our time anymore, but I do want to say to... Um, Sorelli and Carvel, you guys literally blew my mind. Mm -hmm. Literally. You are, that is my hope. Um, to Dr. Sacchetti and Arwadi, um, to Senator Simmons and to Dr. Morthy. This, I want more. I want to hear more. I want to talk more about this. <laughs> I see a lot of children's advocates and health professionals in the audience. Um, you know, we deal with Dr. Jose Sanchez at um, Humboldt Health, so we get a up close and, and personal view of things. But this has been an amazing conversation. And I often say when we're at our home base and at Magianos that, you know, there's going to be a continuation. Well, Dan, there's going to be a continuation. I don't know how you figure that out. <laughs> I'm going to leave that to you. Uh, this more to come. That's Dan's tagline, by the way. Okay, does he say that to you at the house a lot? More to come? Yeah. So I believe that because I was reminded that it's okay to not be okay on some days. And I think about it a lot. I, you'll often hear me, if you know me, you'll say that I believe in Jesus and a therapist. But I forgot that it wasn't okay. It's okay to not be okay. And if any of you talk to me, poor Lauren Jessica got the brunt of it. This morning started off 
horribly. <laughs> but I'm okay now because I'm reminded that, well, I think I'm okay, that I'm reminded that, you know, it's okay to not be okay and it's okay to have some bumps and ridges in our road. So um, a big thank you to everyone in the room to our City Club family, members, friends, and guests, and everybody else. And I would like to now, before we totally close up, Dr. Crossman from Adler. I know he's here because I talked. Oh, I'm looking in his face. <laughs> I'm going to hand you this mic because am I, TW, am I, is this mic live or is this mic live? Okay. So I'm going to take this back. Sweet. <laughs> What a beautiful, beautiful, fantastic conversation that just doesn't happen um, and enough and doesn't happen in spaces like this. So I am so appreciative. Uh, some of the themes that I heard um, across uh, folks today is that we need to move from old-fashioned mental health intervention to public health promotion. Right, that we need to move from crisis work, emergency work, and even individual therapy to prevention and community embrace um, and promotion of wellness. Um, that we need to move from the direction of experts to direction from communities. That we need to move from the unspoken to spoken. That we need to move from isolation to, uh, to social inclusion through courageous sharing and conversations. Um, we need to move away from a distinction between physical and mental health. Useless way to think. And we need to move to from asking what's wrong with you to what happened to you. Um, so, but, but overall for me, like I heard across all the conversations across the past couple of days, that we need to move from mental health intervention to public health promotion. Um, so I, I too want to express uh, gratitude to uh, everybody who made uh, this conversation work today. Uh, Dr. Murthy and your fabulous team, um, we had a just fabulous day yesterday um, uh, talking to uh, youth, as Mary Ellen said, and to practitioners and, and a great policy discussion this morning and lots of follow-ups. Um, yeah, courageous, inspiring youth, thank you. Um, and the panelists who spoke today, you are our public health heroes, your models for the nation. Um, thank you for sharing today. And to all the folks at After School Matters and at Adler University, we bring together 103 years of experience, 33 years of After School Matters, and Adler University is celebrating our 70th anniversary. In this partnership, we are collaborating with communities to change the rules about promoting health. Um, you know, through paying attention to the social determinants of health, through realizing that our health resides um, within our community life. Um, and in these two days, we're getting the word out to continue and expand our work and others' work um, so that we can make youth wellness happen. To all of you today who attended today, um, all the ideas or themes that I tried to share that these folks said more eloquently, it's up to you to take them seriously and implement, and implement them. Um, and I'm confident that you will. Um, all of us together will answer these challenges that were defined for us today. Thank you for being here. Have a great day.